Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.7 The Hegemon Who Never Was. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. With the COVID pandemic raging, I hope all of you are safe and doing well. The usual announcement before we begin. If you are listening to this podcast on YouTube instead of regular podcatchers, please hit the subscribe button below the video. Also, please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications. That way, you will automatically be notified as new episodes load. If the coins I mentioned in today's cover art do not show up in your podcatcher, you can view all the coin images at my website at veryoldmoney.com. We have four coins in the cover art today, all from our old friends from Classical Numismatic Group LLC, and you can visit them at cngcoins.com. Last episode, we saw Philip formalize his domination of Greece with his huge victory over Athens and Thebes at the Battle of Chaeronea and the foundation of the League of Corinth that fused all Greek states other than Sparta together under Macedonian leadership. This time, before we move on to the last two episodes about Philip, we will take a slight detour and go back a couple of decades to cover a character largely forgotten by history and who has sometimes been referred to as the man who could have united Greece before the rise of Macedonia. We did run into his sons a couple of episodes ago, though they were not referred to by name in the episode about the Sacred War. The mythological home of the Greek heroes Achilles and Jason, Thessaly consisted of a broad central plain surrounded by mountains. The rich and prosperous plains of Thessaly were also noted unusually compared to the rest of Greece, for their horse-rearing. Rugged, mountainous, hilly Greece is not horse country, and the rest of Greek city-states as a result relied on their hoplite cavalry. In contrast, Thessaly was noted for its cavalry. Now, most of the other Greek city-states oscillated between the narrow oligarchy favored by Sparta or the democracy established by Athens in the 5th century BC. The cities of Thessaly were dominated by tighter aristocratic clans. Even if the rulers of the cities were not formally monarchs, the power of the aristocratic clans was so high that these that the leadership was basically hereditary and public opinion was often ignored in the policies of the city-states. Wealthy, generous to poets and philosophers, the aristocrats of Thessaly were also notably fractious. Unlike neighboring Boeotia, where Thebes became the dominant city, Laconia, which was dominated by Sparta, or Attica, which is dominated by Athens, no Thessalian city gained dominance over the whole region. This disunity also sapped the power of Thessaly, as the various aristocrats intrigued for the benefit of their clan or their individual city, in contrast to Thessaly as a whole. And this disunity 
limited the ability of Thessaly to play a bigger role on the Greek stage than its wealth would have otherwise indicated. The Thessalian League, based in Larissa, loosely bound the cities of Thessaly together, but neighboring powers like Macedon were only too happy to interfere in the affairs of Thessaly. The Archon, the nominal head of the League, had little power, and the tyrants who would try to unite Thessaly came up with a brand new title to justify their claims. At the end of the 5th century BC, the, dyna- the dynasts of the town of Ferai started challenging the loose hold the Aluads of Larissa had over the Thessalian League. This process started with Lycophron of Ferai, who briefly took control of Thessaly by force, killing those who opposed him. The Aluads, as will be the go-to maneuver, as you will notice in the rest of this episode, promptly started seeking help from abroad. First, from the Persian prince Cyrus the Younger, who we will meet in a few episodes, and the king of Macedon. Lycophron I of Ferai ultimately failed to win support within Thessaly itself, and as a result, his attempt to seize Thessaly by force led to the disintegration of the Thessalian League. Lycophron's likely successor, Jason, learned from his mistake. I say likely because we are not entirely sure what the relationship between Lycophron and Jason was, but it is possible he was his immediate heir, possibly his son. Jason appears to have inherited an immense amount of wealth from his mother, who notably for the time managed her property herself, And this was sufficient for him to raise a mercenary army of 6,000 men. And with this, he resumed Lycrophron's attempt to reunite Thessaly. But, in contrast to his predecessor, he was much more tactful. As city after city fell to him, he often used diplomacy and stratagems to win, rather than using brute force. And once he won, he tried his best not to humiliate his opponents. Xenophon notes his speech to a leader of the city of Pharsalus, where Jason noted he was not marching his army against the city because he would rather have their voluntary cooperation. And throughout the 370s, Jason worked on uniting Thessaly. And while doing so, he took full advantage of the political situation around him. Sparta was at war with Thebes and Athens, a conflict that we looked at a few episodes ago, and Jason stayed on good terms with all three and even entered into an alliance with Thebes and Athens. And by 373, as Jason completed his conquest of Thessaly, he did not bother taking the title of Archon. Instead, he appears to have created a new one of Tagus, which also gave him the rise to mobilize the Thessalian army. As Sparta, Thebes and Athens continued their grudge match, Suddenly, out of nowhere, emerged a new power under Jason of Ferai, capable of putting 20,000 hoplites and 8,000 cavalry in the field. Armies of that size cost money, and it says something about the resources available to Jason and Thessaly that the tyrant of of just one of the cities in Thessaly was able to harness the resources of that region to such a degree. And 371 BC saw Jason really appear on the Greek stage. He made an alliance with Amyntas III of Macedon, Philip's father, 
And then in the aftermath of the Battle of Leuctra, he was invited by the Thebans to finish off the Spartans. And here, Jason, in contrast, suddenly decided to act as mediator, an honest broker, and somehow got both sides to agree to the terms which allowed the Spartans to withdraw the remaining troops out of Boeotia. Xenophon positively gushes in his praise of Jason in the aftermath of this diplomatic coup. And he states, So he returned to Thessaly, a great man indeed. He had legally been appointed Lord of Thessaly. He controlled great forces of mercenaries, both infantry and cavalry. And these forces had been trained to the highest pitch of efficiency. He was greater still in the strength of his alliances, many states being allied with him already and others being anxious to do so. When one considers there was no power on earth that could afford to disregard him, one may say he was the greatest man of his times. High praise indeed from Xenophon. And he goes on, there's more gushing when he starts talking about Jason's personal virtues. His generalship is of the highest quality. He is one who, whether his methods are those of plain force or working in the dark or seizing an unexpected advantage, very seldom fails to achieve his objects. He can use the night time as well as the daytime, and when he wants to move fast, he will put breakfast and dinner into one meal so as not to interrupt his work. He will not think it right to rest until he has reached the point for which he set out and done all that had to be done, and he has trained his men to behave in the same way. Although he knows how to gratify the feelings of his soldiers when they have won some success as the results of extra hard work. So all who follow him have learned this too, that one can have a good time also if one works for it. Then too he is more self-controlled than any man I know with regard to bodily pleasures. These never take up his time and prevent him from doing what has to be done. Jason himself was the alleged inventor of the Hemithorachion, which is an ancient Greek half-armor that controlled the midriff of the abdomen area and was appears to have been designed for officers. In art, it is often depicted on female warriors. And as Jason and Thessaly started to rise, some Greek city-states started to fear that Jason meant to become the tyrant over Greece. And this is unfortunately the standard motif of Greek history which in later terms the British would call the balance of power. Nobody wanted anybody to become too powerful and this process would continue until Philip came from outside and swallowed up Greece. So it appears Jason's program was to expand Thessalian influence by taking over our old friends the Amphictyonic League. Go back to the episode of the Sacred War to hear about the Amphictyonic League. And then launching the Greeks into a new war against Persia. It was during the Persian Wars that the Greeks were last united, and launching them against the Colossus of the East was one sure way to ensure that. Alas, this war would never take place. Suddenly, in 370 BC, an assassin's dagger ended these dreams. Jason was the hegemon who never was. The invasion of Persia would not originate in Thessaly, and it would be someone else who forced the recalcitrant Greek cities into union. Now, who assassinated Jason is a bit of a mystery. Xenophon speculates that it was his attempt to take over the Oracle of Delphi, 
Diodorus speculates it was on the order of his brother Polydorus. And it is possible it was his brother because the assassination of Jason set off bloodletting in the ruling house of Ferrae. Polydorus does appear to have succeeded Jason as Tagus, but he was soon overthrown by his brother Polyphron. And in 369, Polyphron himself was killed by his nephew Alexander, who was either the son of Polydorus or he may have been the son of Jason himself. I have not been able to find a confirmed answer. I have seen both of, both of these speculated. Unfortunately, the power structure Jason built up turned out to be ephemeral. It relied heavily on, on the personal qualities of the ruler. And Alexander, even though he tried, was no Jason. The power of Ferrai relied ultimately heavily on mercenary armies and not homegrown manpower as under Philip. And even then, it did not immediately collapse. Alexander, who as we said came to power in 369, has an almost uniformly bad press from ancient writers. Diodorus, Demosthenes, and even Xenophon accuse him of brutality and harsh rule. But part of me wonders how much of that is colored by his ultimate failure and ignominious end, in contrast to his, until his end, very successful predecessor, Jason. And the problems for Alexander start with the old Thessalian bugbear, disunity, when the Aliads of Larissa refuse to accept him as Tagus, and then immediately turn to foreign help. And this started with an appeal to the new king of Macedonia, Alexander II, because Amintas III had just passed away. And I referred to Alexander II intervening in Thessaly in episode 3.2. The Macedonian intervention appears to have caught Alexander by surprise. And remember, Jason had reached an alliance and understanding with Amintas. But this Macedonian intervention was soon followed by the Thebans, who intervened on the behalf of unknown Thessalians, and this forced the Macedonians back. And this Theban intervention eventually resulted in Philip ending up a hostage in Thebes, also in episode 3.2. But however, in 368, Alexander was able to force a Theban withdrawal and ended up with a truce that left him unmolested for three years. And for three years, Ferrai continued to dominate Thessaly. But the refusal of Larissa to accept Alexander as Tagus in the ensuing war ended the attempt to recreate Jason's soft approach, as Alexander moved towards a more personal approach. And this is starkly reflected in his coins, where he broke with long-standing Thessalian practice and put his own name, and possibly even himself, as we'll see in the second coin we'll talk about shortly, and though not in portrait form, he put himself on the coin. So let's take a look at the first two coins in the cover art at the top from today. The first is a hemidram. It's in silver uh, of 2.04 grams. The obverse has a youthful head of Jason to the left wearing the patassos. This is Jason of Golden Fleece Flame, not Jason, likely not Jason the, the, the tyrant who was just assassinated. And Jason is a common motif on coins of Thessaly from various city-states. And again, Jason originated in Thessaly, so obviously the region was very happy to claim him. And the reverse carries the name of Alexander in Greek. And it has a horse's hoof and the lower leg to the right. 
Again, this is probably a nod to Thessaly's fame in producing horses. The second is a bigger coin and a truly beautiful coin. It's a silver stator of 12.07 grams. The obverse at the head of Enodia facing turned slightly to the right and she wears a pearl diadem, grape cluster earrings, a pearl necklace. On the left there's a torch. Now the actual identification of Enodia varies by ancient writers and by region and she has variously been identified with the goddesses Artemis, Hecate or Persephone. And there appears to have been a shrine to Enodia in Ferrae, which is why she ended up on the coin. Now the reverse, and it's a gorgeous reverse because the details are, have survived. Whenever you have such small details on the reverse, those often wear out. But here in this coin, they're truly spectacular. The reverse has Alexander's name again. And there's a rider, which is likely Alexander, riding a horse galloping to the right. He has the reins in his left hand and a lance held level in his right. And you get a good look at Greek armor of the time. He's wearing a cavalry helmet, a cuirass, and he has a sheath, he has a sheath sword on a baldric around his chest. And on the horse's rump, there's a mark of a double axe. There's some speculation as to what that specifies, but nothing certain. And this is an extremely rare coin, and it's, it's pretty spectacular. Now, as a tyrant who relied heavily on mercenary armies, Alexander minted coins in high quantities, and he also invented in a variety of denominations. Staters or didrams, drams, semidrams, triobols. After all, he had cavalry, infantry, and as we'll see later, even a fleet to pay for. But in 364, the Thebans came back under the generalship of Pelopidas. And at the Battle of Sinocephale, which in later history was the site of a more significant battle between Rome and the Hellenistic Kingdom of Macedon, Alexander, who had heavy numerical superiority, appears to have underestimated the Theban phalanx, which was at the height of his power. Remember, Epaminondas is still alive. The only bright spot for him in this battle was the death of Pelopidas, who lost his head and tried charged to try to kill Alexander himself and was killed in the attempt. But the next year, he was defeated by a second Theban army and he was forced to release the Thessalian cities and revert to just being the tyrant of Ferrae, no longer Tagus of Thessaly, and he was forced into an alliance with Thebes. But things changed in 362 after the Battle of Mantinea, which we covered a few episodes ago, and the death of Epaminondas. Now freed of his Theban hegemony, Alexander suddenly turned on Athens and started a naval war with them, and also a general pirate campaign in Thessaly. But none of this ever got him the, the hegemony he briefly held in Thessaly. It all came to an ignominious end when he was murdered in his sleep by the brothers of his wife Thebe, who was the daughter of Jason, and so as a result was either his cousin or possibly his stepsister. There seems to have been some real dislike between husband and wife, and Thebe conspired with her brothers to actually get into Alexander's bedchamber and kill him. Thebe herself may have briefly held power until her brothers, Tessephon and Lycophron II, took over as tyrants. The rise of the sons of Jason, otherwise known as the Jasonids, 
coincided with the sacred war, which we covered in detail two episodes ago. And as the war spilled into Thessaly, Larissa, as usual, went ahead looking for foreign help and got it in the form of Philip of Macedon. The Jasonids made the fateful mistake of allying with the impious Phoikians, and by 352, they were forced to surrender Ferrai, ending their tyranny. Thessaly was now at the feet of a new hegemon, but one from outside Thessaly. The last two coins in the cover art are issued by the final tyrants of Ferrai, and they're both in bronze. The first is a bronze chalcus of Tessaphon, 15.5 mm, 2.11 grams. The obverse has a bull forepart facing right, and it's truncated on the left with a beaded border. And the right foreleg of the bull is bent, and the reverse has Tessaphon by name from above. And the way the lettering is depicted is a little unusual. It's in a circle going from top to bottom, but the first and last letters of the inscription are upside down. Now to the right of this is the forepart of a bridled horse, and the coin actually has a dark red patina, which is something that's very, very interesting when you get with bronze coins, when they pick up the, the patina of the sand and stuff they were buried in. The second is also a very rare coin of Lycophron II. And on the obverse, you have the wreath head of what the uh, auction cataloger called Hecate. And I'm just wondering whether this is supposed to be Anodia herself facing slightly left. And there's a fish to the left of her. And the reverse actually has the goddess who's seated side saddle on horseback holding a torch. Now this coin does not actually mention Lycophron by name, but it just has the name of Ferai, the city at the bottom. So with the Jason is expelled from Ferai, we have time to just think about the life of Jason, which is a fascinating what if. He was obviously extremely talented as a diplomat. He did, did an amazing job maintaining good relations with everyone outside of Thessaly. But he was also lucky and he was able to use the external situation outside of Thessaly and the turmoil among his neighbors to use that decade of the 370s to bring Thessaly under control without external interference. Alexander, in contrast, had no such luck. And his enemies were able to get foreign assistance to frustrate his goals, and he had the misfortune to deal with Thebes at the height of its power. Now, could Jason have actually united the Greeks and aimed them against Persia? As some of the ancient writers speculate, and others have speculated since, to be honest, I'm not totally sure. The career of Jason runs parallel to the career of Epaminondas and Thebes. It's hard to see the Thebans getting on board in a war against Persia until the Spartan threat was eliminated, but you never know. And it ultimately depends on what sort of league he would have been able to bind the Greeks together with. The size of his standing army was fairly comparable to Philip, but he was so reliant on mercenaries that he didn't have the same reserves of manpower that really helped Philip. And even with that manpower, Macedonia in coming decades would struggle to keep replenishing the army as Alexander and his military machine kept marching further east. But for a decade, Jason blazed across Greece like a meteor. His rise was sudden. The rise of Thessaly came out of nowhere. And just as some states were looking at Thessaly with unaccustomed trepidation, he burnt out just as quickly. 
Now, with the fall of Farah, as I mentioned, Thessaly was united, but this time by a foreign ruler. Philip was elected Tagus of the League for life. Thessalian cavalry would march alongside the Macedonian war machine all the way to India. The hegemon who never was, was replaced by a one-eyed, limping mass of scar tissue, was all set to fulfill Jason's dream of marching east. But as I mentioned last episode, just as everything was set in place, a spectacular family scandal ripped apart the Macedonian royal family. Philip had taken a new wife, and the drunkle revels at his wedding banquet led to a brawl and ended with Philip's only capable son and chief queen off in exile and would eventually down the road lead to much bloodletting. Who needs all my children, the bold and the beautiful, the young and the restless, when you have the Argyads of Macedon on stage? So, we will see you next time in episode 3.8 in A Royal Soap Opera. See you soon, and stay safe, everyone. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you will access this podcast. Good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you for your support.